the remote working? There we go. Um, okay, so chapter four of Paul's letter to the Philippians, which was just read, as we read this passage, it's important to know that Philippi was first and foremost a Roman metropolis, an important city in the empire. In Philippi, the Greco-Roman empire, or excuse me, the Greco-Roman culture was dominant. And like a pride of lions, there were many competing philosophies in the Philippian culture. But the most dominant among them was called Stoicism. Stoicism was a popular Greek philosophy, and some of the, the basic ideas were a deistic view of God, that God was not involved in the world. And given that, we need to be resigned to our fate. And Stoics would not emotionally uh, invest in their circumstances and in relationships, but be detached as much as possible from them. The, uh, the goal for the Stoic was what they called autarkes, to live above need and in abundance in such a way as to be self-sufficient. The Stoic philosopher Seneca summarizes this belief by saying, the wise man is sufficient unto himself for a happy existence. The church in Philippi was impacted by these cultural influences around them. And so let's pick up Philippians 4 with that in mind. And we're going to start at verse 11, and then we're going to touch on some of the earlier verses later. And in verse 11 he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. Now look closely at what Paul is saying here. On the surface, it looks like something that a Stoic might have written. In fact, the word we translate as content here is actually that Greek word, atakes, that topical word that the Philippians would immediately associate with Stoic philosophy. But in a brilliant move, Paul is using this familiar cultural buzzword and turn the Stoic perspective of verse 11 here on its heels two verses later. So let's read the full passage. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me the strength. So the source of Paul's sufficiency is 180 degrees different than the Stoic. While the source for Stoic sufficiency is self, the source for Paul's sufficiency is Christ, as he says there. I can do all this through him who gives me the strength. Paul transforms this Roman understanding of self-sufficiency into something we can call Christ-sufficiency. In effect, he is saying, self-sufficiency is Satan's snare. The only true free person is the person who, paradoxically enough, is dependent on the Lord for everything. And in the church in Philippi, they were not battling over Stoicism as a doctrine being taught in the church. And if you read through Philippians, you know that Paul doesn't directly deal with that. But at the same time, as we can see here from this passage, Paul understood the subtle influence that Roman culture had on the Philippians and that Stoicism become, could become a typical way of thinking to the Philippians. Well, Stoicism is one of those historic philosophies that has gone by the wayside. We're not going to be tempted to give up our Christian faith and to become a Stoic. In fact, if we met a Stoic on the street, we would probably look at him much like he was a seven-figured man. But at the same time, I think we have a tendency to become subtly influenced by one of its philosophical principles, that natural tendency towards self-sufficiency. 
When we talk about the subject of self-reliance in the church, it seems like we often focus on American individualism. Remember that video we showed just a couple months ago when, with Frank Sinatra singing, I Did It My Way? And that's well and true, but I think there's a more subtle form of self-sufficiency than outright rugged individualism, something like rejecting our faith as a result. And I'm discovering this more subtle form of this in myself. I struggle with it, and maybe some of you are struggling with it as well. The it I'm referring to here is what I'm calling a talk race faith, or a self-sufficient faith. I don't want to give up my faith. After all, it's core to who I am. But I want to live it out on my terms. Let me explain what I mean by looking at five symptoms of a self-sufficient faith. There are many more, and perhaps these five in particular are arbitrary. But, hey, I'm just a sub, so you get what you get. <laughs> so first of all, trusting in God and the big things, trusting in ourselves and the small things. I think perhaps the most obvious way in which self-sufficiency can surface in our walk with Christ is the amount of genuine trust we're willing to, to place in Christ. Proverbs tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. We read books and hear sermons all the time about trusting in the Lord. It's one of the core tenets of our faith. And yet our tendency to seek sufficiency in ourselves impacts our ability to fully trust in the Lord. Maybe we start off trusting in the Lord, but as time goes on, maybe we feel burned, felt like God wasn't answering our prayers, and so things turn out differently than what we expect. So either consciously or unconsciously, we begin to take certain things on for ourselves. And this is exactly a struggle I've had over the past few years. I'm not in abandoning my faith or even doubting God's abilities uh, to interact in the world or his love. But I often feel like I'm hedging my bets. Faith becomes safer when we live it out on our terms. And we can do it with great, one, excuse me, we can do it with great effectiveness with a handy tool that we call common sense. Uh, a friend of Kim sent uh, an email to her a few years ago, and it, this struck me when, I, when she read it to me, and I, let me share it here this morning. It says, there we go. God's word is clear that we should use our minds, so it's fine for us to use common sense to make decisions. Now, that sounds good. It sounds like a real balanced approach, but at the same time, is it fully biblical? Oswald Chambers, for one, would not agree with that perspective. And he said, to counter that, he said, The majority of us do not enthrone God, we enthrone common sense. We make our decisions and ask the real God to bless our decision. Common sense is not faith, and faith is not common sense. But when we rely on common sense to guide our lives, our faith in Christ can so easily and subtly be transformed into faith in myself. We trust in God in the big things, things like heaven and hell, things that we can't control. But we rely, our, we rely on ourselves in the little common sense things. But when you think about it, those really end up being the big things to us in the here and now. In other words, we end up trusting God on our terms. Well, a lack of trust in God is an obvious symptom of self-sufficiency. But self-sufficiency can take many forms and even on the most unsuspecting of packages. And let me touch on some of these this morning. The second is self-policing ourselves. 
Well, if you were here last week, you heard Dave Bronson talk about going to confession when he was growing up as a Catholic and the positive impact it, it had on him in the, in the times in which he offered a genuine, heartfelt confession to the priest. And as I listened to him last week, I was struck by the unexpected impact that the Protestant Reformation had on the discipline of confession. The Reformers got rid of confession as a formal practice because they believed, and rightly so from my perspective anyway, in the priesthood of believers, the idea that there's no human that intermediates between us and God. But 500 years later in today's day and age, look at the side effect of that decision. Instead of confessing and being accountable to others, we can take on the attitude, nope, I've got this, I'll handle it myself. In fact, I would say we have almost completely lost the connection uh, with others when it comes to the discipline of confession. The standard evangelical response has been the idea of accountability groups, the small group of friends in which you can truly open up and be accountable. But how many of us are really involved in one of those? So I think the typical self-sufficient response is, I got this, I'll handle it myself. The third thing is, the third symptom, church when convenient. Now, as evidence this morning, our, our <laughs> attendance at Cana fluctuates crazily. We'll have 75 people one week, 45 the next, 20 or whatever the, the next. Uh, there, it's, and it seems like there's no real rhyme or reason to the patterns. And while it seems that church attendance here seems to go up and down more than other churches that uh, Kim and I have attended over the years, Cana is certainly not alone in this modern trend. In fact, the way in which, uh, I was looking this up last night, and the way in which church leaders define a regular attender, quote-unquote, has changed dramatically over the past decade. Instead of someone who almost always shows up to church, many churches now define a regular attender as someone who shows up at least twice a month. Twice a month. So our modern standard that 50% is good enough, or shall we say that 50% is, is typical, now, being fair, I agree that there's many competing forces, vacations and weekend getaways, that's certainly this week here at Cana. Jobs can come into play, family obligations and illness. These things are going to impact us at one time or another. It's a reality of life, especially in this day and age, and especially in the summer months. But while that's true and each person has their own set of circumstances, I wonder if inconsistent church attendance could also be a symptom of self-sufficient faith. We can almost unconsciously have the attitude, you know, I really don't truly need to worship with others. I got things covered this week. After all, my faith is between God and myself anyway. And again, it can be a, it can be a symptom of faith on our terms. The fourth, handling our own problems. Paul tells us in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But I, our self-sufficiency can has a tendency to derail this command. When we're self-sufficient, we will usually buckle up and rely on ourselves during the tough times, and we'll avoid as much as possible reaching out to others. I had a dear friend who was recently going through a rough time, and when I asked him why he didn't say anything to me before then, he told me, I didn't want to be a burden. Now, I'm not getting on my friend at all. In fact, in his words, I saw myself. I see that same exact tendency in how I react to situations. Basically, I'll deal with it. I don't want to have to involve others. I don't want to have to burden them. 
Yes, I think true desperation will knock us temporarily out of this self-sufficient attitude, but once we get back on track, we can revert back to this, I, you know, right back to our I got this attitude. The fifth symptom, reading through the Bible through the lens of our experience. Now this symptom of self-sufficiency may seem a little bit different than the others, but bear with me for a minute. And the reason I bring this up is because it's directly related to what we're looking at in Philippians 4, so I feel like it just got incorporated into our discussion this morning. And that's the issue of how do we read the Bible? The typical way is we'll read our English translation of the Bible and glean meaning and understanding based on how we read it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I think that's probably a common way that people would describe that. A few of us might go the extra mile and have our study Bible with notes at the bottom and, or maybe even a Bible companion if we're really um, special or whatever. But the danger is when we are content to stay there. <laughs> Here's a recent letter from a uh, Christian college student that wrote to the university's student paper. My concern is not God's word, but how some engage it. Modern exegetes ask, what was the original intent of the author? Or what did, this meaning, what did this writing mean to the audience who received it? They might go on to examine questions of literary genre or grammatical construction of a passage in Greek or Hebrew. But consider the implications of this approach. We are told that we need to get, we need to, excuse me, we are told that we need to know the culture of that time and what Paul's word meant in its original context if we want to get at the truth. But this approach prohibits ordinary Christians from forming beliefs for themselves. If we say understanding scripture depends on certain evidences related to the original context in which passages are written, scripture is rendered impotent for the Christianity at large. Basically, to summarize that, the student's argument is if we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we should be able to read the Bible in a self-sufficient manner and understand everything that we are supposed to. But consider the shortcoming of this perspective. Even in the text that we just read together uh, this morning, just a few minutes ago, let's jump back to verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, our typical understanding of this passage is I guess if we summarize, we're think pure thoughts. Wouldn't that be kind of a, a good summary? But that's not exactly what Paul is saying here. Remember how I talked about Paul using stoic terminology in verse 11 to contrast self-sufficiency with Christ-sufficiency? Paul is doing something similar here. He's writing in this passage in the, in the language of um, Hellenistic moralism. And the Philippians would have heard these sort of moral pronouncements from their youth. So Paul lists these Greco-Roman pronouncements, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, etc. But then look at what he says at the end. Think about such things. Now, we usually interpret this as Paul calling the Philippians to focus their minds on these virtuous things. However, when you look at the, uh, the Greek words there, a much more accurate interpretation is to reckon, or to take into account, or to closely scrutinize. And so let me reread that with that in mind. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, take into account and closely scrutinize such things. 
Notice how this changes and expands the meaning of this passage. Paul is not saying think virtuous thoughts so much as take into account the good that the Philippians have already known since their youth as long as it has moral excellence and is praiseworthy. Uh, commentator Ben Witherington adds, Paul is calling his audience to be sifters of culture, not simply rejectors of a larger culture and its values and virtues. It's a much different uh, than the typical understanding of this passage. And one more for you, the last verse that we looked at and read together, Philippians 4.13. The uh, RSV ver uh, translation says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. NIV has a little bit different. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Well, this verse you probably memorized in you know, Sunday school, Bible school growing up. I've seen t-shirts with it on bumper stickers. I've heard it discussed by authors or preachers as a promise we can apply to accomplish great things in Christ. But what does the all things refer to in the context of this passage? Let's read verses 12 through 14 again to provide proper context. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in living, uh, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. As you can see in context, the all things refers to him being content as he, as he is in living in want or in plenty. A much better translation in context would be, I'm able to face all these things in the one who strengthens me. In other words, this is not a blanket verse that we can do all things in Christ. I can, the idea of like, I can run the Boston Marathon through Christ who strengthens me. I can get this job promotion in him that strengthens me. Commentator Ben Witherington says, this verse is no charter for thinking that one can accomplish anything if one just draws on God's strength. So let's kind of review what we just went over here. Just the typical understanding of verse 8 is to think pure thoughts, but a deeper understanding of that is be sifters of culture. Verse 13, a typical understanding, with Christ's strength I can accomplish anything. A deeper understanding is that I can be content and cope in every situation through the strength of Christ. Okay, so that was a little bit of a, of a tangent, and I get that we're not all experts and we don't have all access to the resources that David or another pastor might have. But at the same time, I hope it's a sobering reminder that if we bring a self-sufficient attitude into our reading of the scriptures, we're going to miss out on something deeper and more substantive. There should be a tension in our hearts between where we are today and where we want to be tomorrow. In our trust in Christ, in our commitment to others, and even as we looked here, in our understanding of God's word. And I would suggest that that tension is the key point, because I think it reveals the state of where we are in our heart. If there's no tension and we're not wrestling with these issues at all in our hearts, then perhaps we have to ask ourselves whether we are holding on to a self-sufficient faith. The frustrating thing about a self-sufficient faith is that it's so typical, it's so commonplace that it can go undetected in our lives for years. But what's the net impact? When we settle for the typical, we limit and cheat ourselves, the people around us, and even Christ himself. Something that uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his essay, The Weight of Glory, hits the nail on the head, I think, when we're talking about this. 
And Lewis writes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. When we settle for a self-sufficient faith, we're like that ignorant child settling for mud pies. When we withhold trust from Christ, we cheat ourselves and we don't fully realize the holiday by the sea, the contentment, the peace, and the joy that God offers us when we fully trust in him. When we police ourselves, we cheat ourselves of the value of confession that Dave Bronson had talked about last week. When we're sporadic in church attendance, we limit the extent of our relationships with others, and we also hurt the community. When we avoid sharing our burdens together, then we make it harder on other, ourselves and take away that other uh, believers can experience as they serve you. And we're content to read the Bible and maybe a spoon-fed manner, and never venture beyond that, then we can get an oversimplified version of God's word. Moving beyond the typical. That's the sort of topic you would expect to hear from a visiting missionary, a youth leader, or a keynote speaker at a conference like one of these. Normal is not enough. Extraordinary women conference. Ignite. Be inspired, refreshed, and empowered to impact your world. Uh, so go beyond the ordinary. Do something extraordinary and make a difference. And so usually when we discuss these kind of issues of going beyond the typical, we put in the context of our, the big decisions of life. It's our career, missions, go to the mission field, ministries, that sort of thing. But I think this idea of moving beyond the typical is equally valid and certainly more relevant to us in our everyday life of faith. The more, the more mundane issues that we've been talking about this morning. In the opening, um, not so typical video, uh, Mute Math challenges us, can I break the spell of the typical because it's dragging me down? I'd like to know about when, when does it all turn around? This morning, let's break the spell of the typical, give up our self-sufficient faith, and be sufficient in Christ alone. Thank you, Rich. Kids, if we have any, are coming in. <laughs> 